Welcome to Careers in Your Ears, a careers podcast for PhD students and research staff at King's College London. I'm Anna Favalessa, one of the careers consultants supporting researchers here at King's. I'm joined today by a King's PhD alumna, Jennifer Jackson, Assistant Professor at the University of Calgary. Welcome, Jennifer, and thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's lovely to meet you. Um, so I was wondering, just to start us off, whether you could tell us a bit about your career journey to date and how you decided on an academic career. Sure thing. So I'm a registered nurse and I've had lots of different roles, but I've kind of carried that professional identity with me as, as I've moved through. So, so I started my career after my bachelor's degree and I worked clinically and um, did clinical work in a couple of different settings, uh, the majority of which I guess was in intensive care. And within that, I feel like I, I was out of university, but I've always been engaged with teaching and learning. So I became a certified preceptor, um, which is like a, a mentor in the UK, uh, I believe it's the term. And so I've worked with students all through my clinical career. Um, I had an opportunity to, after I worked in ICU, I worked in management for a while and um, I was a corporate manager in charge of uh, a part of teaching and learning for nurses at a large hospital. And then um, I did my master's and after my master's I had the opportunity to and it ended up being that I submitted my final master's corrections on uh, December 27th and flew to King's on January 1st <laughs> and wow. started at King's on January 5th. So I would not necessarily recommend that path to anyone else, but, but hey, here I am. And um, so I, yeah, I did, then did my PhD and I was hired to become an assistant professor. So soon, shortly after I finished my PhD, I moved back to Canada and started into that role. So I was a little bit different in that I didn't do a postdoc or anything like that. Um, but I have been really happy that I've moved into the role I'm in now. And so um, just for our audience, the term professor in Canada means something different than it does in the UK. So we have more of a longitudinal view rather than a hierarchical view. <laughs> so, um, so my role is sort of equivalent to like a senior lecturer, um, but, but also has some differences there. But just as a, a sake of context, so I do research, I teach graduates and undergraduates, and I do academic service as well. Brilliant, thank you. Um, and good uh, to I understand mean, the differences uh, in the titles in different countries, that's really useful. So could you tell us a bit about your research? So I study resilience in people and systems, and I look primarily at how nurses are how nurses work and do their work within healthcare systems and then how can we optimize healthcare service delivery uh, primarily with the nursing focus so right now my area of interest is largely with community addiction services and i approach those from the lens of looking at a lot of these services um, like a supervised consumption service or safe injection site type of thing 
Uh, those are nurse-led services here in Canada. And so I'm looking at how, how does the nurse-led component and how does the nursing work within that? How does that create cost-effective kind of agile services? How can we strengthen healthcare delivery? So it's been really interesting because I am not a clinician in mental health and addictions, but I think there is still a lot of value of saying, you know, is this the best way we can provide this service for people? And if not, is there a better way that we could be doing things? So I think that that lens, I expect over the course of my career, I'll probably work with a lot of different types of either patient populations or types of services, but, but I see it as being connected because it's a question of, you know, are nurses there? How are they, how are they doing what they do and how can we support that? Okay, great. And so your research into resilience in nursing seems particularly topical. In fact, you could say it's the theme of 2020, really, what we all need. So um, what impact do you want that research to have? And, and what do you do to ensure that it does have that impact? Yeah, so I think that right now, um, it's a little bit falling out of favour. And I, I completely understand that what I have done in my masters particularly but also in some other projects as well is look at resilience for individual level nurses and um, I know that many nurses have become really frustrated with that because they feel like the term is resi resilience is being used to say you have to be able to put up with anything mm -hmm. and at the heart of the matter, like the research, my work, but also that whole body of literature has never argued that. But it's in the translation of that concept from like its academic definitions to how it's applied in practice. It has become this thing where, OK, well, if you're struggling, you need to work on your resilience rather than we need to work on having adequate staff and you know reasonable working conditions. So in some ways, it's kind of fallen out of favor, which is a little bit hard. It's like, hold my baby. <laughs> but um, I guess what I try to do is, is, is really work with the framing of it. So I say to people, like, I'm trying to give you a life jacket because I want some agency in the hands of individual nurses. I don't want them to just be at the mercy of their employer or their environment. So I want them to have some tools and things that they can do themselves. So, so sort of the life jacket. Now the ship that they're sailing on needs to be sturdy and, you know, and, and sea, seafaring and, and that type of thing. But I'll need the life jacket. So I try to give the framing that like, I am not here to tell you that you should be able to deal with anything, especially in this context. I think we're seeing a lot how even someone with the most robust personal skills can still be overwhelmed by their environment. And, and how could they not? So in those cases, I try to say that, you know, what I'm saying does not replace the need for the good system. And, and I'm working to build the system as well, but I also want people to feel like 
they have a little bit of control, even in a really difficult situation. And even if that control is very small, like if they can have an opportunity to watch one of my YouTube videos or attend a workshop or something and and just even have a half hour to like think about themselves and, and what they could do for themselves. Uh, I hope that's still valuable for people because I think at it at its core, resilience is saying we can't always control the world around us, but how can we do our best to be okay? And it doesn't mean we're not upset or we're never affected. It means how can we manage even in kind of suboptimal or challenging conditions? And I think for me, it's it's sort of the question of a lifetime, like the, you know, part of how do we understand the human experience? But I also hope to give people very, concrete kinds of steps and and make those available through um you know i have a website i have a youtube channel i use social media a lot so i'm trying to get the word out that way to counteract some of those narratives where resilience has been sort of turned into corporate speak and and used really ineffectively mm, thank you and that makes a lot of sense particularly at the moment doesn't it in terms of people trying to find some kind of control Yes, yes, definitely. In, in the situation where there's a lot of rules coming out from things, places where we don't have any control. Yes, absolutely. And so I think um, just to put my little plug in, I would say for people, one of the most important things is to have awareness of how you're being affected by everything that's happening. So when you have awareness, then you're able to make good choices for yourself. And so people say, well, yes, sometimes I get the response that like, yes, obviously awareness, but if you've ever had a friend that's maybe had a breakup or perhaps even yourself where it's like, oh, I'm fine. I'm, I'm over him. I'm fine. And you think really not fine, <laughs> but you, you perhaps have seen that where somebody's in denial about it. And then because of that, they don't make the best choices they could for themselves. And so, so I think what I encourage people to do is just reflect on like, what does it look like when I'm doing well? And what does it look like when I'm struggling? So some people sleep all the time. Some people don't sleep. Some people are eating everything in the cupboard. Some people kind of stop eating. And so it doesn't really matter what those individual behaviors are. You just need to be attuned to and take some time to reflect and say, where am I falling in my, you know, in what is, what feels good for me, where am I ending up? And if, you know, I'm I'm not doing well, how can I be aware of that and then try and take some steps to support myself? So, so that's, I guess that's the main thing is that when we have that awareness, then we're able to say, hold on a second, maybe I need to be, you know, having a different bedtime routine or, or you know, whatever the case may be, then we can make adjustments that way and that doesn't fix things but it at least gives you a little bit of control in as you say like these very chaotic times that we're in that's lovely thank you so um i've maybe we've tackled a little bit of this but i've spoken to quite a few postgraduate researchers and research staff who are having to make a lot of adjustments just in order to continue with their research during the pandemic and I wondered if you have any specific advice for them 
um, particularly in terms of that, that sort of carrying on their research? Um, absolutely. <laughs> I think I had to make a lot of adjustments in my PhD because um, I'm disabled and and I have a chronic condition that can change day to day, but also like month to month type of thing. So when I started my PhD, I had a plan that was uh, reasonable at the time. When it came time for data collection, I was not able to enact the plan because it would have placed me in a hospital environment and it wasn't safe for me to be there at the time with, um, with some of the issues I have in my immune system. So, um, the you know the ethics application I had worked on for six months had to be pulled and uh, there was a lot of crying and uh, GNTs and watching you know not British UK TV's finest <laughs> so I had a few days of ineffective coping but that was what I needed to do so so I can I can really relate to students that have had to deal with this, but I say you're more creative than you think you are and you have skills that you don't realize you have. So I did, I ended up pivoting and doing um, interviews with nurses. So I recruited through social media. That worked really well for me. I had enough participants within two days and because I had built this kind of social media following and a lot of goodwill among nurses. And so, you know, I had tons of responses when I asked for participants. So I, I kind of pivoted to doing interviews rather than observations. I made a video game that was three minutes long and sent it out to all of my participants and I had them play it. And it was essentially a small simulation of what it was like in the clinical setting. And then I asked them to think aloud and to use to, to kind of narrate what they were thinking and doing as they move through this video game. So that worked really well to get at the information I wanted without actually being in the hospital. So I, I got my participants to sort of be in the mind frame of being in the hospital and then ask them questions through that. Um, the other thing I did was uh, use Skype for interviews. I know like at the time that was quite nouveau and now that's, <laughs> you know, everyone's daily lives all day long. But, um, but yeah, and I found you know, at the time, there wasn't a lot of evidence about using these kinds of techniques. And and I still came out with a PhD that I was very happy with. I finished, you know, within four years, which all things considered was pretty reasonable for me. And, uh, and I found that, like, I was able to understand issues that I didn't think I would get at. So, so my research question shifted several times over the course of my PhD. But in the end, using the techniques that I did, I found information I didn't know was there and I didn't know I could get at it that way. So I would just say to anyone like, like go digital, there's all kinds of different things you can do, you know, get someone to watch a video online and talk to you about it or, or you know, there's lots of ways to be creative if you can't see people in an environment where 
you normally would or you had planned to. And I think also just be just be willing to try those different things and accept that sometimes when people have to change their research question, they find it really stressful. But actually, I find changing the question is like a couple of lines of text. You know, you you can you can pivot your project quite easily if you have in the frame of mind that like that is something that you can do. You know, your literature review can inform different ways. You know, you can you can fairly easily pivot when you have to. And and I got at a whole lot of other stuff that I didn't know was there. So it was a bit of working backwards in the end, like these are the data I have. How do I make the thesis fit that rather than kind of the other way around? But I've learned that that's how research always goes. It's like there is no such thing as a straight line. And if anything, the whole experience gave me a lot of confidence because I was like, I salvaged you know, this sort of carcass of a study and ended up making something that I'm proud of. It's certainly not perfect. It's certainly not what I would have done under ideal conditions, but I got the degree and that was the purpose. So, um, so yeah, don't be afraid. Don't like hang on too tightly to those things that might not work now. Don't be afraid to let that go and try something creative that you maybe haven't thought of before. Thank you very much. I think the idea of letting go is a very useful one, isn't it? It's, mm -hmm. It can be quite difficult, but it, mm -hmm. like you say, it can lead to all sorts of new possibilities that you can't imagine until you're doing them. Absolutely. Um, so you said that you're now assistant professor. Um, so I wondered if you could say a bit about what kind of leadership skills you feel are important and how you develop the leadership skills necessary to move into this um, assistant professor role? So I think one of the main things to say is that I have confidence and I notice with PhDs like there's lots of talk of imposter syndrome and I would just encourage people wherever possible just put that away like it holds you back beyond what you can possibly imagine. And so when I, I did um, some work teaching at King's, like kind of, um, I don't want to say on the side, but in addition to my PhD, and I would tell students like, look, nobody at King's is stupid. We put you through the admissions process and you got in and other people didn't. So you are here. You are already smart enough the first day you walk through the door and we're here to build on that. So don't spend your whole degree fretting about whether or not you can do it and whether or not you're good enough. That is especially for women that holds you back more than anything else. And so I would say that. I mean, I certainly I certainly have tons of skills to develop. I have no there's no pretense that I know what I'm doing. I even quite regularly say to my research team, I have no idea how to do this. But we're all smart people. We have the whole internet at our fingertips and we can figure it out. We can do hard things. So right now, for example, I'm doing a research method I've never used before. I have no idea how to do it, but I know that it's an innovative way to access a data source that we were able to um, get a hold of kind of unexpectedly. So so let's figure it out. And, you know, we 
we're working with Excel spreadsheets. Like if it goes wrong, it goes wrong. After working in ICU, like I have a very high tolerance for things that go wrong in regular life because when you compare that to something going wrong at ICU or ITU, like there's just no correlation there. So like nobody's gonna die if your data analysis doesn't work well. And that doesn't mean your data analysis isn't important and significant, but, but I think the, the main skill to have is to be confident and know that you can figure out and do hard things because that, I think that is the number one thing that holds, especially women that holds people back. And like, you have to just believe in yourself and go for it. And, and, you know, sometimes it has disastrous consequences in different degrees, but then you just say, you know what, I screwed up, I take responsibility and let's move forward. Like, as long as you're not doing something immoral or unethical, you're likely to just continue and learn from that. So, so I, I, would, I would absolutely say confidence is like the number one thing that you need to have in this type of role, especially when someone is always, you know, you're someone is always getting the grant and you don't, and someone is rejecting your journal article and you have to resubmit and, you know, somebody got promoted and you didn't, and that's just the way of life. And so the thing that I think that I developed at King's, which was a lot of resilience to like negative feedback and rejections of various sorts and this kind of thing. And now I, I will never say it doesn't bother me, but now I can take it in a stride. And that means I can move through things more quickly. And given that the metrics in academia are all about productivity, now whether they should be or not is another conversation, but they are. So your ability to move on quickly is essential. So you, if something doesn't go well, you have to be able to either pivot with it, change, or drop it, keep going, because you don't have time to brood over stuff. So um, I think those, those are the most important skills. Like, you have to be able to work with people. You have to be able to build relationships. I'd say if you're doing a PhD, you probably already have that, um, and it's something to just develop. And you have to be able to understand the games that people are playing. And I think that this is hard because a lot of times we don't even want to admit we are playing games, but we do. So so I think one of the things that has helped me be successful at, at all the jobs I've had or when I have not been successful at, in those roles is that I wasn't aware of what was actually going on behind the scenes. So for example, like, Nowadays, you have to have the primary metric for academics is publications. I know there's like some change around that, but at least in my area, you have to have publications. So be aware that you have to have publications and you specifically need to scheme to get publications and and be aware that everybody else is in that boat. So so I have some colleagues that I work with and say, okay, I can put you on this publication and you can support me with the data analysis that I don't know how to do. And it's not your field of expertise, but you know that specific technique. So let's work together on that and I help you with that paper. 
and then um, you bring me on for something else and I help on that paper. And we can, you know, kind of go back and forth with that kind of thing. And so I'm not talking about, you know, putting people's names on just for the sake of doing it. Um, but if you make a true intellectual contribution as is required, like figure out how you can make each other do well and, and create that environment for you and recognize that like it's not just about a purist intellectual pursuit. Uh, you can have great ideas, but you have to publish. So, so figure out how you're going to publish. And, and I also look at like, what do, what makes my bosses look good? Like if I do something, what helps them, you know, what makes them look good and thus they are better able to support me uh, and think about those kinds of things. So I find that there's also like when I worked in corporate management, we could have all kinds of fights and debates behind closed doors, but it's like when you walk out, you close rank and you tow the party line and that was expected of you. And so you have to know that that's happening and, and you might not like that, but you have to be aware that that is the game that is played in that environment. And so if you don't want to do that, you, you know, ultimately it might not be the environment for you and to a degree, not for that reason, but management wasn't the environment for me because I've, I've had trouble with some of those things. But I think that um, people don't always realize like just how pragmatic and practical you have to be. And, you know, with your PhD, you can kind of have this purest pursuit of knowledge and new ideas. And when your PhD is over, you got to get projects done. And they might not be ideal, but you have to be able to kind of keep the machine running. And so um, being aware of that is, is an essential skill as much as anything else. Thank you. So being quite strategic. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And I think that that is that is underestimated, but it's it's you know they the um, plug for Canadians. Our greatest hockey player, ice hockey player ever, was Wayne Gretzky, and um, he said, "Skate where the puck is going to be, not where the puck actually is." And that, uh, while being very colloquial, that is a good advice for life so like even for myself um currently we have an opioid crisis there's a lot of funding that's available for looking at addiction services i know with my knowledge about systems i can kind of set up shop anywhere i want because i can look at any type of system so i know that this is a system that affects vulnerable people and that's really important to me because I believe in social justice and I want to make a contribution that way. I know that there's a lot of funding in that area. There's a lot of research capacity. There's lots of smart people working there right now. So that is a place for me to set up shop because I feel like it aligns with my values primarily, but it also fits the current academic climate. And so, and it might not always, I might, you know, move to another issue at a later time. But but the decision to do that type of research was very strategic. And being strategic doesn't mean it's not rewarding or fulfilling or, you know, values driven. It can be all those things, but you still have to be savvy about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
savvy is a good word. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're kind of coming to the end of the podcast, but I just wondered, um, we've touched a little bit on sort of confidence, particularly if you're a woman and um, also if you have a disability. And obviously we would like academia to be, we talked about wanting it to be more diverse than it currently is. I just wondered if you're seeing changes in your institution or you feel um, that you're finding that you or your colleagues are doing things that support that kind of increase in diversity for the next generation of leaders in academia? I think that it's good that we're having long overdue conversations and yeah and long overdue is exactly this. We've had you know people of color, people with disabilities, we've all been like raising the alarm for a long time now and it's I'm glad that someone's finally listening Um, and I think that you know I recognize as a white woman, I still have a lot of privilege in an academic space. And so I think the most important thing to do is is when it's time for me to advocate, to advocate, but also when it's time for me to listen, to listen and to continue doing reading and reflecting and learning to try and be better myself and to support others. I think as a woman, it was really, it was really important for me to take this job. So what I mean by that is that I think normally people would have a postdoc before they would take a tenure track academic post. And I think that there would be people who would have turned this job down because they said, I don't have the postdoc, I don't have the confidence that I'll figure this out. There are mediocre white men, no offense guys, but there are mediocre white men who apply for these kinds of things all the time, even if they don't have all the credentials. And there's research on this. This is not, you know, a nasty opinion or something. We might have to edit this out of the podcast. We'll see if it makes the final cut. But but I'm, I'm being serious. There's evidence that shows that women will apply for a job posting if they have all the criteria that meet that posting men will apply if they have any of the criteria and that's not to negate the experience of you know men of color and men with disabilities who who may face extra barriers there but the important thing is to say like go for it so for myself i was like yeah i probably would benefit from a postdoc but i have a chance for a job that has pension full salary, academic benefits, startup funds, all these other kind of things. And I said, this isn't something that comes along every day and I'm going for it because I I have things that, I have knowledge I can contribute. I have things that I can contribute and you know they vetted me. So they obviously think I can do the job and why would I second guess myself? Cause I've never been in that environment. They have been in that environment and they think I can do it. So I went for it. And so I encourage my fellow women and other people with disabilities, go for it. Just just jump in and push yourself. And I know that that's not always the case because if those don't op- if those opportunities don't exist, you don't you can't take that action. So I see I see my role now as being central to I've got like, I'm on the bottom rung of the ladder, but I already see that it is my job to help people up the ladder. 
So um, I have to do academic service and the committee that I joined was on um, the hiring committee for the university. And I hope that in that role, I can make sure that we're getting diverse candidates through the door. Or if we're not, I can be the person to say, hey, we don't have any black people on our shortlist or maybe not even any black people who are applying or um, perhaps more in the Canadian context. We don't have any indigenous people that are considering this. So is there something wrong with the language in our job posting or is there something wrong with our vetting process? So that's a place that I can make a difference. I also am now hiring students and I'm trying to make sure that I have very equitable hiring practices and I can set the salary for my students. So I pay them really well. Like I pay them as much as I can because I want them to have good experiences. I don't, I've lived through financial precarity. I don't want other people to deal with that. And um, when I was at King's, I was a study skills leader. And I would say for anybody who wants an academic career, that is the best experience you could possibly have. So shout out to study skills. I highly recommend participating in that program because I worked with tons of students who are not English first language and who were also immigrants and who had like all of those different challenges. And now that I am a supervisor, I'm very aware of everything that is involved in that package, having lived it myself and worked with lots of those students. So I told um, my dean, I have experience working with people who are immigrants and people who are not English first language. I know that those people have disproportionately lower rates of attainment. And, you know, I have specific skills that I can work well with that population. So give me those students. So I'm trying to even in, you know, an, an entry level role, make sure that where possible, I'm making changes. And, you know, we recently had a meeting about curriculum change and um, our country's going through a truth and reconciliation process about um, indigenous issues right now. And we said, okay, we're gonna have indigenous content in the curriculum and we're doing this and we're doing that to decolonize and all that kind of thing. And so I said, we need a course outcome that reflects that. Because then when it's a course outcome, then it's in writing, then it is mandated, required, it must be taught. So that's the thing that moves it from goodwill to actually happening. And, mm. and I think that I, I'm trying to insert that at a, at a powerful moment. You know, I didn't, didn't launch into a whole social justice warrior rant about how we should be doing this and it's morally right and the academy is poisoned and all these kinds of things. I just saw the opportunity and said, I think that's a great idea. We need to have that course outcome. And it is now. So now everyone is required to teach to that standard. So, I mean, I've been on lots of marches and protests and there's absolutely a space for that, but there's also times where if you see that tiny gap, you need to just flood through it and take that moment. And it might not directly help you, but it will help make the academy more diverse. And that helps you because 
we all have richer experiences when we are surrounded by diverse people. And I think that like sometimes as a, as a disabled woman, like sometimes people have to be accommodating for me or they have to be more patient with me or more understanding. But, and at first I used to feel really guilty about that, but now I see that that's an opportunity for them to widen their worldview and to build some empathy and try and make things better for other people. And that has benefit for that person. And so me being in that space makes a better environment for everyone. And that's the same for oh, someone challenges me on microaggressions or something that I've said that's wrong. That's really uncomfortable. But then I, as long as I handle that process as it should be with dignity and respect and reflection rather than like a knee-jerk reaction, I hopefully will then be a better person. And then I am better the next time I encounter that issue. And then I am better and the academy is better for it. So, so it's not a question of like, well, we need to let these people in because it's good for them. It's good for all of us. And so I hope that we'll, we'll be better institutions when we kind of blow the doors open and have anybody who wants to participate welcome. And so I think that if we try and wait to like, well, when I'm a, a vice chair or a dean, then I can change the system. It's like, if you wait till then you are the system. So I see that like, you know, I don't, I have to be strategic about what is a point where I can make a difference and what is the point where I'm not ready for that conversation yet. But when you have those opportunities, you have to take them. I think that's brilliant. Thanks, Jennifer. It's so uplifting to talk to you. And I think that's a really positive note to end on. And it actually goes back to the beginning of the conversation about taking control where you can. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So thank you very much for joining us today. Um, we're always interested to hear from our listeners too. So do get in touch if you've got any ideas of who you'd like us to interview or specific questions you'd like us to ask people. You can uh, tweet at KCL Do One Thing or email careers at kcl.ac.uk. And thank you very much for listening to this episode of Careers in Your Ears.